Hey there, I'm Gabby Schoenig. And I'm Sid Levine. And welcome to Musician's Tea Time. So this is pretty exciting because it's been a while since we were both here at our microphones like this. The reason being, our intrepid host Gabby was traveling the wilderness of LA and got to interview some great musicians in their natural habitat. That's right, I'm decompressing back in Normandy right now. It's been a very hectic and busy few months. I am very thankful and honored to have been able to get, you know, personally acquainted with some lovely people in music over there in LA. So, who do we have at the tea party today? I'm very happy to introduce Ira Engber, a music industry veteran, session musician, composer, producer, solo artist, longtime friend and collaborator of people like Bob Dylan, Van Dyke Parks, and poster boy for all men born under the sign of Aries out there. So true. He's also notably currently working with Steve Bartek, Chan Avila, and David Raven in a band called Jackie O, which if you're in the LA area, I really recommend you catch one of their shows. So I thank him very much for welcoming me and having this conversation on topics too numerous and interesting to name out right. Yeah, Ira is basically a font of wisdom. He talked about a thousand different things that were all fascinating. And I really enjoyed listening to this interview. And also, the intro and outro music for today's episode is by him. So if you were listening to that and you're like, wow, that sounds really good. It's his. Check it out. Yeah, I will link to that. So without further ado, let's get into it. So Ira, thank you and welcome you. Uh, to Musician's Tea Time. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. This is always the question that bothers people, but do you think you could tell us about what you do, what you've been doing since when you've since been I was it? Since I was 12, you mean? <laughs> In the realms of music or art or whatever? Well, I'm a musician, which is a, probably not a big shock. I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My family came out here. I was quite young, but I still have a large family there. So the Midwest roots are still kind of there. We visit. But when I came to California as a young, a young guy, we were in the midst, not even in the midst, it was before the big pop explosion took place of the early 1960s. And it was largely centered here. Although at the time, not all of us knew that because it all felt like it was England, the Beatles and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it was here. The The music business hadn't really migrated. It was, it was centered in New York, largely. From the earliest days, all the big companies were in New York. And Los Angeles, of course, was the film business. And one by one, these companies started coming out here because the cultural changes were happening here first, largely fueled by a few things, the, the, the Vietnam War peace movement, the civil rights movement, which was really around the country. But so much culturally was going on here that specifically in music, these companies that had been based in New York suddenly were here. Warner Brothers gets out here. And then later, uh, Columbia, CBS came out here. Atlantic came out here. They all ended up being here. And But Capital, which affected me directly, was here. Capital was the only home, I think the only homegrown Los Angeles major label. And so when I was in a band, I was 16, and uh, I joined this band that had already been playing. I replaced one of the members, and we got a deal to be on Capitol Records. 
when I was 16. And it was a big deal. I mean, the deal wasn't a big deal, but for me, it was a big deal getting, you know. But it was almost a natural thing because it was the record company down the street. It was the local, you know, and the Capitol Tower, which is, of course, still there. I hope you, have you been in there yet? I've seen it. You must go inside. Oh, you can? It, it, oh, yeah, they do tours. It's, it's a working studio. There's still three rooms there. It's gone through a lot of changes, but the studios are legendary, and they still sound amazing. And going in there then and going in there now, aside from the new equipment, it looks the same. It's, it's like a museum. Famous pictures, all the people who recorded there, Nat King Cole and Sinatra and go down the list. And so this band I was in called The New Generation ended up on Capitol Records. And we rehearsed. They didn't know what to do with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they 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 put us in one of the studios, B, as it turned out, which is a wonderful small smaller room, but a good ensemble size, and that's where we we were there rehearsing in this room. And so I would be looking around, and the consoles, of course, were very primitive in those days. It was all obviously analog stuff. But I would kind of peek in and say, "Well, what does that do? Oh, okay, that's oh, well, that's a Hammond organ. Oh, that's a Neumann microphone." So I started seeing these things that attracted my curiosity in addition to playing. And I had an early reel-to-reel machine. It was a just a seven and a half IPS reel-to-reel <clears throat> that I always just sort of had. I was always recording things along with playing. So the, the two became part of the same thing. Recording and playing was uh, an inseparable part for me from the earliest days. And being here, as I said, in, in Los Angeles was a huge advantage because there was a huge pool of, of, of talent. There was a lot of opportunity. And the business part of it was inventing itself. And so you'd find yourself, you know, playing uh, live or in later years going out and touring with supporting acts or supporting an artist. More deals happened. But it was all because the opportunities were here. And I had I have an older brother who was in the business as well. So I knew I met a lot of people through him and to this day, people I still work with. So the advantage was really just luck. It was just luck being in the right place at the right time. It's often the case in yeah. the music industry. Nothing. I mean, you know, I, I had some talent. I worked hard, but I was in the right place. At the right time. At the right time. If, you know, if I was in, you know... Lafayette, well, Louisiana maybe would have been different. If I was in Bismarck, North Dakota, no, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened at all. And it was happening in a very small geographic area where I grew up, which was the Beverly Fairfax area. And a lot of later famous people went to the high school I went to. The Chili Peppers came out of there. And uh, before that, Phil Spector went to that high school. And it, was, it had a history because of where it was located, in the middle of Hollywood. And so those kind of things were all afforded to me in this very small geographic area. Capitol Records was two miles from my house. So it was one of those kind of things. So you got to do that. You were, you were a teenager? Early I was 20s. a teenager, yeah. I was very young. And, and um, it, as I said earlier, it, it didn't feel unnatural. It felt like, well, that, of course, um, you know, this is what you do. You're, you're, you're in music. You, you get onto Capitol Records. Later, I found out how unusual it was. It, it was very unusual for someone 16 years old to have a record deal on Capitol Records. I didn't know that at the time. I knew it was special. But even at the time, uh, well, it seems like it was a lot easier to just 
walk in and make a band and have a record out and now it's maybe a bit more saturated oh it's the business does not resemble itself at all there were good and bad things about the old days the bad things in some respects outweigh the good they owned you they were the gatekeepers they decided who could record they decided where you could record they decided when you could record and at the end they owned it and you were always in debt to them but they had the means to distribute the stuff they had the means to essentially decide who was going to succeed and who wasn't it was in their power so they could make you a break you absolutely and so you know the people who who pine for the good old days there were really good things about it the good part was that you were supported you know when you went on the road the record company paid for the hotel rooms of course you paid for it out of your own pocket later but they they i like to call them a very high interest bank they lent you money at high interest rates but they lent you money you know we got to work with some of the greatest engineers and talented producers and great studios so that was all plus stuff and i learned a lot uh, along the way and as we started to see the system change it's much like what happened with with movie studios again using them as an example there was a thing called the studio system in the in the 20s and 30s 40s 50s even the big companies Warner Brothers MGM Paramount they owned the actors you were signed as an actor to Paramount or you were, and they would lend them Paramount would lend out you know Cary Grant to work for this one and they would make deals with you they they were pawns the actors were pawns it dehumanizing yes yes and then that system started to break down sort of when the music system started to break down when the actors and the directors broke off and they started their own studios and Francis Ford Coppola did that the early works of like Spielberg and and De Palma those directors they went off on their own and it was the, the studios were going to you can't do that and they said watch me and they succeeded and it broke down and the same thing happened in 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 music where there were always independent recording studios here in LA but the dominant ones were owned by the record companies and you could only record in their studio when i was on capital we had to record in their studio because we were paying to record well, as is kind of the case with you got all of these sub labels and that's right and that happened that happened a little later but the subs were already kicking they, in they answer back in the end to the big company that's right that's right and now it's it's kind of come full circle so like universal music group owns everything Pretty you much. know they own A&M they own Motown whatever it is they own everything and so it's kind of like we went from the ownership of everything by the company to then more independent to now back to the company owning everything but to this day do you do you find that you want to break out of that circle like if you've got solo albums yeah i mean the, the again the good news for today with the last 20 years has been digital technology has created a lot of opportunities uh, we don't need to go to a studio a facility to work we can i have a room here but when the computer became powerful enough and memory got cheap enough and go down the list and plugins we'll, we can talk about later when everything kind of reached critical mass and that was around oh i would say 2000 2005 somewhere in there around the time the iPhone came out when that happened the independent artist was liberated because the independent artist could record when they wanted to they could put out stuff when they wanted to and at the end they owned it that's the good news the bad news is everybody's doing it so how do you get attention 
Well, then social media starts to kick in. And so people are, you know, yelling out, hey, I have a record. Hey, I have a record. Hey, I have a record. Now there's too much music. And what's the statistic we've heard about YouTube? That, what is it, 20 hours of programming are uploaded every second? It's, you know, you can't, there's no way to calculate. And you can't really fight against the algorithm. No, no. So how do you even get attention? How does an individual independent artist get attention? Well, you band together sometimes and you pool your resources. And then now we're back to a label. So like, for example, Jackie O is a good, our little band. Everybody in that band is a producer on their own. We all have our side, our careers, you know. And when when we get together, we have this really big pool of talent that so-and-so can do this, like I master records for David, our drummer's projects, or John will hire me to do, or I'll bring John, I brought John and David in on a project I produced. So there's a lot of cross-pollinization going on, and maybe there's more, we'll, we'll see more of that. So maybe alone on your own, each of you, you've been less able. Yeah, you need, you need to band together. There's a wonderful quote of uh, one of our early founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin. Spent a lot of time in France, as you know. He said, this was on the eve of the American Revolution. I think it's something like, we must hang together, or most assuredly, we will hang separately. It's very true. The fact that we need each other, you know, and to the extent that in the music aspect, the music business, it's a predatory business. There's a lot of unscrupulous stuff going on. I don't want to even get into what artists are now paid for streaming, but you're, you're aware. It's, it's, it's a pittance. Almost not enough to, yeah. to want to do it. Physical media is no longer. So essentially, the money that is made these days by musicians is by live performance, selling merch at the, at the shows, and the one last area, which is what Jackie O is, is focusing on right now, is licensing for television and film so yes. that we'll record things we'll write things we, we just we're working right now on a, a project we're about to wrap for a company that hired us to create original music for film and tv trailers web stuff there's still money to be made there because there's upfront licensing but the old days of being able to make an album let's say make a, an album and go on tour do very well and repeat the process it was album tour write album tour write album tour, and you would just do that That's gone. But one thing that's not gone, I feel like, is fan interaction, fan interest. It's more than ever. You you have to have it in the sense that you're not going to make money off of streaming, but a fan who really likes what you do is going to buy the physical album, even if they don't listen to it. That's why vinyl. I've been telling people, people buy, buy vinyl and never listen to it. No, they I mean, I've got a bunch of vinyl. There's some here and there's some over there. I never listen to it. I like looking at it. I like seeing it. I like knowing it's there. But you're right. Fan interaction is critical. And we have the means now to reach people we never could before. I can. I have some personal f- fans. There's some a couple in Sweden that I interact with and a couple in England. You know, people around the world who have bought my stuff. We could never have done that before. So that's a good. That's good. That's good news. It, it's it's pluses and minuses with this stuff. It's and like, being able to navigate the pluses and, and minuses is critical because we have these tools that are unprecedented tools 
these phones we've got, we have the ultimate means of communication and it's never been so bad in terms of getting hold of somebody. But we have the tools for it. And then every once in a while, someone really smart gets together. Zuckerberg, for example. Well, I can do this. And suddenly he's a trillionaire, you know. So we, as artists, as creative artists, I think the assets far outweigh the liabilities right now. Although the liabilities are pretty substantial. I think it's pretty interesting that you seem to have this outlook that is pretty different from a lot of people in your generation of musicians who tend to sometimes have a misplaced longing. How about pessimism? How about pessimism? No, it's different from pessimism. <laughs> it's more like um, misplaced nostalgia for the past. Yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because... Things are just different. Things are different. And, you know, the past is truly gone. Okay, folks? It's gone. It's a legacy, if you want. If you want to dwell there, you will find yourself being very disappointed. I've had some very, very lucky moments uh, along the way, and a few in particular that I think are worth even bringing up right now. This was many years ago, early 80s. I was working in a studio a, a lot that a friend of mine, I be we became friends. I was there all the time, and I learned a lot of studio techniques by being in there every day. And I didn't know, I didn't know a mic, one mic from another. And I, I started to learn, oh, okay, I could cut tape. I learned, and suddenly, well, I'm getting pretty good at this stuff. One day somebody came in with this big box, just about this big, a bunch of knobs on it. And he plugged it into the console. And was, okay, what's going to happen? It's, it's start. I'm hearing drums. It was the first Lynn drum machine. It was the first drum machine that sounded like drums. It didn't sound like a, a TR-808. Was it the beginning of MIDI? It was just before MIDI. Oh. I'll, I'll, you jumped the gun here. You got a brush. Yeah, yeah, you jumped the gun, but I'm, I'll be there in a second. And the studio had great playback, Yuri monitors, big giant guys. It was clear as day. That's where we're going. That's it. It's not that it's the best thing to do or that it's a possible way. No, that's where it's heading. It's what is next. Yeah, I, it was It was just like a light bulb. Went, okay, that's it. That's where we're going. And then you started hearing those records, early 80s, Michael Jackson records. How, uh, no drummer can play that. Well, it's not a drummer. And then the sounds got a little bit more artificial and more signal processing, gated reverbs and things like digital reverbs and things like that. Treating these machines. MIDI happened then and the dam broke because at that point one person or two people could replicate an entire band. So the bass player's gone, the drummer's gone. The guitar fortunately for me was and still is harder to replace because it's so random. I find it extremely difficult. Yeah, to, well you can't. use a plug-in to replace You can't. I've heard a million guitar plugins, and I use some of them just because they're easy and convenient and sometimes they're really good for the task for maybe i mean in my experience perhaps big chords or something yeah that's right that's, that's right so you know and atmospheric stuff it's great it works but if you have four people here play guitar and i handed each one of them okay here you play a c chord now you do it they're all going to sound different now i want you to play a line play it da, 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 da. same notes same guitar they'll all sound different you can take a piano they all sound the same so it's again luck Guitar wasn't going to get replaced. In some ways, it, it rose to greater prominence. Saxophone, violin, those those idiosyncratic instruments that are so... That sound? Let's, let's record that. That was an advantage to yes. those players because they became more personality. So you could spot Eddie Van Halen. 
that's Eddie Van Halen. That's what he. But no one sounds like that. Kind of weeds out. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It weeds them out. But for all the other stuff, for bass and string players and keyboard. I mean, I, I'm a lousy keyboard player, but with MIDI, I sound really good. Right? Who doesn't? Yeah, who doesn't? But uh, even an entire orchestra. You can replicate that. With sure, the, and it happens every day. With the BBC plugins. Abs it and happens it, it every day. And, and, and That's right. And as the budgets came down, because the producers, the end users of these projects, wanted to take advantage of this stuff, they say, well, we have $5,000. Can you give me a film score? And you say, oh, I can't. I couldn't, you couldn't have done that before, but now you can. You work really hard. But in fact, it can be done. And that became a problem unto itself because the more people said yes, the lower the budgets kept going. And that was that's like what I was saying earlier about technology was very liberating and provided huge opportunities, unheard of. But it also ensured the demise. It was almost like this self-destructive thing that it was like this, this drug that we all took that was, yeah, this is great stuff. However, there's a price to be paid. And the price was the ability to command a budget that was workable kept sinking because the end user said, well, if you can't do it, this person over here will be happy to do it. They've got a computer set up at home and they'll just crank it out. And for a lot of music that just is wallpaper, like a documentary or a commercial, you don't need 10 people. You need one. That's true. But there's this difference in what the person who's commissioning an artist will want. Because if somebody's willing to work for cheaper, it's not going to be the person who's going to hire the entire That's string right. quartet or the That's orchestra. Right. Or... Yeah. I, and if you have the opportunity as a listener to hear a MIDI single person based score versus a bunch of people playing, you're always going to pick a bunch of people. Not everybody can tell the difference, though. Well, I disagree. I think I can, but... Uh, no, I think most people can, even lay people, even people who are not professionals. They're going to pick up. There's, there is something that hits us here in the heart and the ear from humans making music together. And we saw this during the pandemic. This was a really telling example of that. So all during the pandemic, we didn't, at least I didn't, most people I know didn't, we weren't playing together. And you saw probably online all of these squares of jazz guys or classical people playing, and it looked great. You know, well, he's, there's the bass player, and there's the drummer, and none of them were playing together because there's the issue of latency. That was the brick wall. We couldn't get anything below We couldn't get anything close enough to 10 milliseconds, 15 at the top latency. Unless you can do that, we couldn't play together. So I would play something, I would send it to you, you play it, you sit there, he plays it, and then someone at the end puts it together. It sounds a lot like music, but what's missing is the nonverbal communication. What's missing is the emotional context of being in a room together where so much happens that is not articulated verbally. And when I got back earlier this year to my first in-person session, it was like I, besides going to heaven, <laughs> that's where it started. The things we never thought about, such as playing together, such as the nonverbal, all that stuff we never thought about because we never had to because it never stopped. So you were taking it for granted. Yeah, either, you never would have thought of it. But as soon as it's taken away, it's the only thing you think about. And then suddenly when we're back, it's like, This is amazing. And it continues to be that. When you saw us the other night, that was only our third time of playing as a band live since the pandemic. Yeah. We've done a couple things. 
we passed a few files around to each other. And it's just, for that, with that band, it's not the same. That band is about spontaneous interaction. And that translates off very well from what I saw. Yeah, that's what we do. You're interacting with one another, and it makes one happy to see you guys. Yeah. Because you're smiling at one We're happy. The audience is happy. The audience is happy. We get happier. It throws back and forth. You can tell there's a chemistry yeah. between you guys. Yeah, and, and all of that stuff, you're right. It was taken for granted because we never had to think about it. Well, now we do, and just yesterday we were, as I said, we were working on this recordings, and we're in the room together, and it's just, I mean, if the only problem we usually have is that we have too many ideas. There's never a shortage of ideas. These are all very accomplished musicians in this band, and, and these guys, we have enormous respect for each other, and we have a lot of fun, but also we, we have a sense of each other's strengths. And we play to the strength. And this is probably going on all around the world with musicians getting back together again after that this very dark time of not. I do get that feeling that it's something that I wasn't really paying attention to before the pandemic when I played with people in a, in a room or on stage. But you do jam and seem to improv quite a bit. Just tell me if I'm wrong. But no, we do. You definitely do. And sometimes you don't even have to look at each other, but you it's only the body language and the way that you seem to, like jazz musicians, you just get in the zone. Yeah. For a yeah. very long time. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. In the case of our band, it's mutual trust, mutual respect. Uh, we know each other really well now. And so I know... That if I just look at David, our drummer, he's going to do something. I just do this. <laughs> he just does it, you know. Or I'll look at John, our bass player, and just go, and he's there. You or, feel that you're leading something? or If I'm leading, if I'm thinking we should, or I'll just do that. I'll just do that. It means keep doing it. Or don't do that. Stop. I've been described. I'm not the leader of the band at all. There is no leader. But I'm kind of like the first among equals. I tend to be more of a spark plug for them. Okay, guys, we're going to do this tomorrow. Send the email out. We have a show here. Be there at 7 o'clock. Now, the other guys do it too, but I tend to be more the initiator. But they're all, as I said, they're all extremely accomplished. Steve Bartek in particular, he's an extraordinary, I mean, his skill set is he's an orchestrator for Danny Elfman. I think he was Oingo Boingo with John. And so it goes back with his stuff. And we've known each other a long time. I've worked on a few Danny Elfman movies. Is that where you met? Well, we sort of, we got to know each other better. We have a lot of mutual friends, but we got to know each other well during those movies. And then we kind of lost touch because Boingo was still active. And then some years later, we crossed paths and, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm not playing enough. That's what Steve said. And so we started playing and one thing led to another. And then we, I had another earlier band and we just play, we love playing together. <clears throat> I love playing with another guitar player. There's so much that can be done with two because, I mean, there's a lot of people who are just solo artists and that's what they do. They But I love the interaction of two guitars. I hear it almost orchestrally and Steve does too. And so we just we find our spots and that's a lot of magic you know that's a lot of just automatic communication that again you take for granted i never took that for granted even before the pandemic but of course certainly during and now coming out of it we, just hits you harder yeah yeah i think we're all and we haven't sorted it out yet as a human race how we move forward from this stuff but i think we're all 
profoundly affected by it. And they, you can see by the enthusiasm of audiences returning to venues, they feel starved for something to give them that thing that was missing that they didn't know they missed when it was there all along. All along. It's hard to describe the feeling of just being happy seeing a band because they're happy playing. And yeah. just for me, it's like that scene, yeah. happy musicians. That's exactly right. In that way, they say, you know, there's the silver linings from the pandemic, some good part of it. I think that's part of it, is that we have a, a renewed sense, a renewed appreciation of things that are really critical and more central to our lives than maybe we thought, because it was always just there. I do agree. Like, not many people want to admit there are maybe some silver linings here and there, but... There's some. It's difficult. There's some, because it's been a tough time for all of us. Mm. You know, very, very tough. We've lost people, personally. Mm. But I, I have to believe it'll be many years of looking back, what was this thing? Big events seem to do that to humans. Like, you can't take it. It's too big to take in, and especially since we're not even done yet, you know. So it affects you personally as a person, but then as a musician, and it affects the environment yeah. in music. Because musicians are, are we, we are empaths, right? We have antenna, we have sensitivities that maybe a lot of other people aren't quite tuned to the same way. So the things that really affect us strongly eventually filter down and affect other people. But yeah, I think as we move forward, there's going to be more of a, a sense of just figuring out what really happened. Maybe if we, I mean, I don't think we ever forgot, but we took for granted more and more being in the same room as people and interacting and enjoying people's company. Or yeah. Whether it's with a guitar or not. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's something good with that. But so that band, how exactly did it come about? When? Well, Jackie O came about by somehow a coincidence. Of course, we know there aren't any, <laughs> but we all knew each other, but we never played together. I knew John. John and Steve, of course, were Boingo. David and John worked together. Steve and David didn't know each other. I think they played once or twice years ago, but they were the most distant of the circle. And David and I were in a band some years ago, brief, and I was at an art opening, art installation, and he was playing with this other guy. We hadn't seen each other in a while. And uh, what are you doing? Oh, not much. So we said, well, let's get together. And it was very quick. Well, we should get him and him in a room. And as soon as the four of us got in a room, it was magic. And that was it. It was just like, okay, let's do this. Now, the difficult part is that we do have lives and schedules. So we would fit in when we could. And then we started, people wanted us to play. And we make it more of a priority because you have to. It doesn't just happen unless you plan it. So we instigate reasons to get together. And it was very clear that this, people who saw us in the very beginning too, This is really special. You know, these, these people have been around, but there's something new here. There's something I haven't heard before. And it's not that we're playing music that's completely unique, because it's not at all. But the way in which we do it, the care in which we do it, the intention. It's about intention, that everyone is in the moment. That's the critical part. You are in the moment. You're not thinking about, did I lock the door to my house? Did I, do, did I pay the bill? No, you are here doing this right now. Mindfulness. Exactly. Yeah, that's the word, mindfulness. It's, 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 it's a mindfulness exercise. The Buddhist monks have been doing it for thousands. It's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. It it's a very good to... remedy for anxiety, even just yeah. listening and, you know, the word vibing to the music. Well, really. being, being in touch with where you are in this moment. This moment yeah. you and I have right now 
is the only one that exists. And the one that we started at about a half an hour ago is gone. This is the one we have. And that's a really tough thing to keep going for the Western mind. I think Eastern, at least old, when, when they had their philosophy stuff together, yeah, when, they, when they weren't so driven by materialism, they had that together over there. And so it's a practice I try to do. I practice almost every day. I play guitar almost every day. Because for me, it's a very physical discipline that if I let a few days go by and I pick up a guitar, it's like, this feels kind of foreign to me. Whereas I know a lot of people, they can put it down and pick it up. They play great. Two weeks later, three weeks later, a month later, no problem. I can't do that. Like riding a bike. Yeah. It's not automatic for me. I've had to work at it. I had, as I said, you know, I had some God-given talent, but I worked hard to develop it. And I still have to work hard to develop it. I don't just get it and it's there. I have to keep it going because it, it requires maintenance. And there's the physicality, as I said. There's the mental part of it. I try to learn new things, you know, as a, as a musician. And then you compound that with learning studio technique and, you know, like we were saying earlier, plugins. And, you know, so I, I've signed up recently with Plugin Alliance. You know about those yeah. people? They're drug dealers. <laughs> Pretty they're, much. They're German, German drug dealers. I love them. On the record, okay, we're, on, we're recording this. I mean, they're, they're making great stuff. And as a friend of mine said, oh, sign up for this thing. You give them a yearly 149, whatever it was, and you get to use all the plugs. You're essentially renting them. And then if you want to own it, then, well, then they have these specials. You probably see them, right? Every day, every day, I'm going to get an email. You have to unsubscribe. It's Well, here's the funny thing that happened two nights ago. So this a friend of mine said, oh, the black box. I don't even know what it is. Put it on the master bus. It sounds great. So I was messing with it. I put it on and it's got mid-side adjustments so you can spread the stereo field. You can, all the mid-side stuff was there. Tube saturation, emulation, all this great stuff. But I, you know, it, but an air, like what is that? It, give me a frequency number. No, it's just air. Well, it's probably 10K and up. I don't know. And it was on sale. It was, of course, they give you the coupons, right? Okay, I'll pull the trigger. So I, I clicked in, logged in. Okay, I'm about to buy it. They said, little prompt comes up. You already own it. <laughs> and I said, well, there's the problem. I didn't know I bought it. I mean, I truly had forgotten that I bought. I haven't, I haven't been using it. But the relentless marketing kept me on edge enough to, well, I better buy because it because it it's going to run out at midnight tonight. That's mm -hmm. They put the time restriction on it. I just thought this was hilarious. I already owned the thing that I was wanting to buy. Really? I can't count, and you probably also, you can't count the plugins you own now. There's too many. Well, you become kind of a hoarder. Yes, that's a good way of looking at it. And this was years ago, too. I remember when the first sample libraries, drum sample libraries, which I have a lot of, you know, Addictive Drums, uh, Easy Drummer. I've got a couple of others. And this is part of the human condition, too, that I think is worth talking about for a moment. So I have 10,000 drum kits, 20,000, whatever it is, more than you can possibly ever hear in a lifetime. And I'm now going to put a drum kit together for something. I'm going to use probably the first one two or three snare drums I hear, and I'm not going to hear the other 20,000, probably ever. Because, oh, this works, I like it, done. There was some study I'd, I'd heard some years ago about giving people too many choices. Oh, right? So you go in, in, I don't know what it's like in France, probably more like here now. You go down the aisle in the supermarket, and there's 20 different detergents for clothes, for laundry. First of all, it smells horrible, but why 20? 
I think it generates anxiety in the shopper, right. which makes them buy quicker without thinking. Well, that's that's a good point. And, and supposedly what happened when uh, emigres from what was the Soviet Union, when they only had one choice, they would go to a Western market and they got anxiety. Like, what do I do? How, how, what do I do? A grocery shopping a year makes me anxious. I'm sure. I'm sure it does. Tell me some differences between here and, and France. I feel like in France, we, we don't have as many, like, things are not as huge right. anyway. Right, And, you know, you go down the aisle and you go, well, things are, they make sense. I feel like the aisles don't make sense in the Well, they're designed to keep you in the aisle here. Yeah, but no, I just want to go get my thing and logically go get the other, which should be around the corner. No, and you have to have go to, to the old market to do that. Not have to pick between so many choices. Right. And usually in France, the prices go from more expensive to least expensive, but that's not always the case no. in the U.S. either. No. No. It's confusing. You become anxious and you're like, I just want to get out of this supermarket. Years ago, I was playing in Las Vegas for a, she was a pretty big artist. Horrible place. You've never, have you been there? No. You don't need to go. Okay. You don't need to go. Knowing you as little as I do, I think you don't need to go. And I'm not a gambling person, so maybe that's why I really hated it. But I realized it was a big, which one was it? It was one of the big ones, you know. To get from my room to the room that we were playing in, you had to, I had to walk through the casino to get there. You immediately get lost in the casino, and that's by design. I think I've been to one casino near Sacramento once. Yeah, those are different. And but that was still massive. Yeah, the whole idea is to is to disorient you, and so you don't know. And well, shopping malls do that here. They used to work. Once you're inside, you have no idea which way out is. It's designed intentionally to keep you in there. Moving back to plugins, <laughs> nice segue. Huh? It's the same thing. It's designed to keep you in anxiety. Oh, you need this one. Oh, you need this one. Have you ever been to a NAM? You probably haven't been to NAM show, or have you? The one we have here. Do I look like I get invited to NAM? <laughs> For your listeners, it's this big international. Was now it's going to be in June. It was always in January here in Anaheim, about thirty miles from here. One hundred thirty thousand people for the. It's a mob from all over the world. And the original intention of NAM was the manufacturers would come and show their things to the, the buyers, the music stores and the retailers, other places. And then slowly, musicians were kind of filtering in. So then you would have celebrity musicians doing endorsements and you'd have mm. people playing and it became kind of a show. The, the intention was still the interaction between the manufacturers and the retailers. But in the last, oh, I don't know, 20 years maybe? maybe longer. The design was to get musicians, or I felt this and other people agreed, if, unless you have this piece of gear, you can't work. You, you need this. You have to have this thing. And so it becomes this big buzz. Oh, you have, to pick, you have to buy that. And then next year, oh, you have to buy this. And you start to realize, I start to realize, maybe that I was slow in realization, that it's all design. It's all intentional design to keep you in anxiety. Huh? It's part of marketing. It's part of yeah. the reasons I dropped out of marketing school because I could not ethically cope with the psychological It's designed to get people to buy. You know, there's a very famous uh, Edward Bernays. You ever heard of him? My name. Worth looking up. He was Sigmund Freud's uncle. Oh, makes sense. I'm sorry. Sigmund Freud was his uncle. Mixed yeah. up. Still makes sense. He's the father of, of modern advertising. He's been, died in the 40s, I think. Critical thinking person. He's the one who convinced Henry Ford to not only have black cars, that they needed to have color for cars. He is almost single-handedly credited with having created the concept of want over need. So I need a roof over my head. Okay, I want it 
to be a pastel color roof. That's different. That's different. I need shoes. I want Adidas, Michael Jordan, right, or whatever. It brings are. back memories from marketing yeah. school with so, the pyramid of needs. He's worth looking up. There's great videos on him. It was all by design. And we live, most of the world, in in the aftermath of this. I don't want to spend any more time on this because we can cover other things. I mean, I find it fascinating. You can ramble. As long I'm as rambling. Well. You got me. You got a rambler here. <laughs> in the early 1900s in this country, women couldn't vote. We had a thing called the suffragette movement, where women were petitioning for the right to vote. It's ludicrous now, but women couldn't vote until, I believe it was 1920, or it was the 20th Amendment. It's, it's, it's somewhere around there, after World War One. Bernays, very cleverly, and it's it's in the story, but the documentary, associating women smoking with liberation with getting their right to vote. Well, they're going to show their defiance. We're going to smoke in public. I mean, couldn't smoke in public, smoke cigarettes. And this will empower us to get the right to vote. And it worked. And so women smoking, you see all these pictures of these suffragists smoking cigarettes because it was their way of saying, okay, we're not only going to do this, we're going to vote. And, you're, and we're going to get it. And he put that dot here and that, and put them both together. And so plug-in alliance is <laughs> right, right in the in the heels of, of Edward Bernays. I'm sure he's very happy about it, wherever he's looking down. Absolutely. I mean, we're creatives, so we think always that we're in it for the art, but in the end, like, oh, I need this and that, and I want to be a good artist or a good musician if I yeah. can do all these things. It's so seductive. You know, it is so, it plays on your fear. Yeah, it's fear of missing out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't have that thing. I don't have the fastest computer. I don't have the bit of that. Well, I, what can I do? You know, fortunately for guitar players in particular, in many cases, the older, the better, you know, not always, but I have older guitars and they're great. The new ones are good. The new, new ones are very, very good. By the way, I'm working with Gibson right now, and I'm not working, but I'm sort of an artist thing with them. And the brand new guitars are wonderful. They had a lot of bad ones for a long time. New ownership now, but guitar really hasn't changed that much. Electric guitar in really 60 years. It just depends what you do with it. Yeah, because um, what we have, I mean, in the music project that I have, what we tend to do is run the guitar through an X FX. Sure. And you can play for hours with that. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a blank slate. Electric guitar is kind of a blank. You can do exactly. so much with it. You can make it sound like anything. Anything, yeah. absolutely. I mean, my friend showed me the, the friend that I do music with. So you play the guitar as well. I play a bunch of everything: right. guitar, bass, drums, and so we just had the guitar, and we were switching from effect to effect on the on the. I was being blown away yeah. with what the thing. And it could gives do. you more ideas. I think that's what we work off of, personally. I don't know if that's what you do. Sometimes you, oh, sure. you'll hear a sound and you're like, oh, I Oh, absolutely. That. Oh, sure. Steve and I, we have a little side project called Bearing All. I'll have to send you some of our stuff. Bearing, Bartek Ingber, last names. Bearing, and I just, Bearing mm -hmm. All. So it's kind of a play on words. And we got this, one of our songs, bought a plug-in. It was a, an Eventide Black Hole Reverb. Love it. Love it to death. Love Eventide. You know that one? Yes. Yeah. So we plugged it into this thing, and it just made us play stuff. And it sounded like ghosts. We put it on the drums. It had a very long pre-delay. So it would be... You'd hear the reverb like, I don't know, 100 milliseconds later. You'd hear the effect kind of bloom. I looked at him, and I said, did you say something? He said, no. What does that sound? And we... Oh, it's that. We heard from the... Sounds like people are talking in here. That became the title of the piece. People are talking. Mm. Example. 
So is that what inspires you to write when it comes to, whether it's been stuff that you've done in the past or stuff that you're doing now with this, uh, is it, do the ideas come from the sounds or the... They come all, all kinds of places. Sometimes I'll wake up, I keep a pad of paper by my bed and a lyric will just almost wake me up. It happens a lot. <laughs> it's funny because I don't want to, I don't want to wake up. I'm just, no, I don't want to wake but I'll forget it. Oh, shit. Okay, I'll have to, so I'll write it. What did I write? Because I'm just, sometimes it's even in the dark. So that, that happens. A lot of times my fingers will just lead me to something, you know, or I'll hear the sound of a bird, you know. There's something that distills through the ears into the brain and it comes out the fingers. So you tend to feel the sound more than feel the words in most cases? Probably 70-30 sound to words. 60-40. 60-40. A lot of words. I write a lot. And it happens, I can't control it. You know, I can't. Some people can just turn on the tap and that was it, okay. I wish, but... There are people who can do that. Most can't. No, most can't. Most can't. But the, the, the good ones can't. I worked with Bob Dylan years ago, and I watched him do that. We were recording a piece called Brownsville Girl, pretty famous song of his. It's a 12-minute piece, 11-minute long, very long song. And we were recording it, and he stopped, and he said he was short a verse. So I said, well, let's come back to it. And I said, he said, hang on a sec. He went off into a corner, took out this pen that was about this big, mm. tiny, tiny little piece. Ten minutes later, comes back. Maybe not even 10. Let's start running it down. We start playing it. And we knew which one it was missing because I remember hearing the verse scheme and that I would know the new one. So we get the new one and it was, he starts singing it. Wow. It was great. And he just did it like that. That's him. That's, that's very Bob Dylan. Yeah, that's him. So, you know, most people can't do that. Um, would you say that like you write about though? Like, is there a theme? Because I feel there might be a theme with the clocks, or maybe it's because of the <laughs> Mars that you've got, or... Well, that that's a, a kind of a funny story on Time Sensitive. You've heard part of that record? I've tried to listen to all of that. Well, thank you. Thank you. I've tried, too. <laughs> <laughs> I think tried is the term to use. I've tried to listen to them. Uh, no, what happened with that record was very funny. I was about halfway done, and I hadn't listened to them in sequence. And I just said, well, let's see where I am right now. So I sat down and listened to them. And to my horror, time was in every one of them. Some mention, some lyric mention or intimation. Ah, this is this is no good. It's a theme. Exactly. Ah, I knew that. <laughs> Not. And so it kind of steered me towards what became time sensitive. I was sensitive to time. But you hear people consciously. Yeah, well, subconsciously, yes. And then and then consciously. But you've heard the phrase time sensitive. How do you say it en français? En français. Depends on the context. Like, you need to see this right now. This must be viewed right now. You can say it's time sensitive. Is there no, no term for it? Uh, my brain's empty, but I would, <laughs> I would say urgent, as in urgent. 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 Yeah. Okay, same thing. There's a sense of urgency Yeah, same thing. There. Urgency, right. So, it's a play on words with me, that it's urgent, and it's also that I'm very sensitive to time. And clocks in particular, I have a thing about clocks. Digital clocks in our studios, which maybe you don't know or know something about, critical part of digital audio, which is worth talking about for a moment. When I first got into digital audio, transitioning from analog, I felt like I had wings. You know, it was so liberating. It was, wow, I can edit, I can move things around, I can produce, copy, paste, you know, all. we couldn't do that stuff. You could, it was very hard to do. 
reverse something very hard. And I remember having real difficulty in mixing low end, bass, kick drum. I couldn't figure out why, because it wasn't a problem in a big room. Off of analog tape, you could just hear everything. Okay, the bass is too loud. Oh, we got it good. It's going back and forth. I was up too loud, not loud enough. And then, because I didn't know anything about digital clocks. And if somebody told me, or I read, I forgot where it was. You need to have a master clock that governs the placement of the audio. Now, this is the early days of digital interfaces. The clocks were lousy. They were, it's called jitter. They were inaccurate. So that at any given downbeat, I want that kick drum there, and I want this event, and I want it there, not here or here. I want it right there. And a lot of those early clocks couldn't do it. And what's the point? Because the well, music is th- about keeping time. Well, it, it's not even that it was out of time. It's out of time by nanoseconds. It matters. It matters amazingly, it matters, because we're not getting resolution. So as soon as I got my first clock, and I've had four since, because they keep getting better. And the one I have now is great. Black Lion Audio, wonderful piece of equipment. As soon as I got the clock, I could hear everything. I could line up, there's the kick. Cymbal de- decays sounded normal now. Mostly it was those fast transients. Snare pop, a kick drum, something that went Because the clock now says, I want you to play this at bar 52, beat three, right there. And it wasn't doing it before the clock showed up. But it's only digital clocks? Because there's this visual thing, because I do think that... Well, I, but, but I do have a thing about clocks, too. I have in my studio an old school clock. This is an interesting story. The invention of the electric clock, which was mostly American, as it turned out. And the reason it got invented was that as power companies came into being, Thomas Edison and everybody else here, and I'm sure you had your equivalent over there, how do you sell power to the public? How does it gauge? How do you keep track of the flow of energy through the walls? Well, it became kilowatt hours, 60 cycles. And so one of the pioneers of the electric clock was a guy named Lawrence Hammond. Does that name ring a bell at all? You ever heard of a thing called a Hammond organ? No. He was one of the early inventors. A lot of people were working on it. He was one of them. There's 60 cycles coming out of the out of the current. He put a coil together. Well, he and a bunch of other people, but he was credited. And two wires to a coil, it's going to turn at 60 cycles. It'll be exactly what a clock, depending on the accuracy of the grid, which has changed now. The grid floats around here. It's not constant now. And so my electric clock kind of moves two seconds, three seconds. It moves a little bit. It's not an atomic clock. So I'm fascinated by that stuff. And so that all came together on time sensitive. The digital clock, the analog clock, our biological clocks, everything's kind of ticking. The heart is a clock. Are you chronophobic? Afraid of time? Afraid of the passing of time? No. Is there a term? Or did you make that up? No, it is a term. I was, <laughs> I was searching for it myself. No, I no. I li- it's a great term. No, no. I can't take it in. I have a difficult time with birthdays. I mean, like 20, 34. They don't make any sense to me because it doesn't compute to how I feel or how I look out. Some years back, there was a study of centenarians, people in their early hundreds. What was their secret? And this one guy, 103, he said, you know, I get so confused because I feel a certain way, but then I look in the mirror and I don't recognize that person. But I feel different than the person I see. Another one says on his birthday, he always memorizes a poem. Every birthday, that's his job is to memorize a poem. The same poem every year? No, 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 new. A new one? Yeah, the same one's easy. But all of them had expressed the same story of being very difficult for them to take in the passage of time. Not that they're phobic about it, just that it didn't compute. The ones were in good health, critical part of it. 
So the clock stuff with me was really a combo of things. This whole bunch of interesting stuff, um, like uh, using the sound of a, a purring cat in one of your songs. That's right, my cat Agnes. Yeah, Perfect Stranger. Perfect Stranger. Which album? Uh, that was Fact Flavored Fictions, the second album of mine. And she, as you know from these these animals, they're knowable and not knowable. Cats especially, they're just a little different. We had it for 20 years. And she was sitting, I was working on something for that record and, and she got it, she wanted to be in my lap and she started purring. I thought, okay, time to sing. So I took my very trusty SM57 and put it right next to her and I started really petting her a lot. It's not that much enhanced. She was really purring loudly. So I just kind of kept moving it around. Okay, there's the good spot. I saw it in there. Okay, thank you much. You can go now. So yeah, that was the kitty purr. I found it really comforting. Yes. Yes. As in your music, it's comforting in the sense that it feels like home away from home. Mm. That's a very nice compliment. Thank you. It's kind of hard to put into words, but there's this very, uh, there's something familiar mm -hmm. about it and mm -hmm. unfamiliar as well. Well, that's that's my intention. As a creative person, you, you want to create something with your signature on it, so to speak. And at the same time, you want it to be something that has familiarity so that it's not alienating people. So it's a balancing act of sound in this case. Some things that will draw people in. There's some sounds we hear that are very, very particular to a time and place. Mellotron's a good example. To a time and place. I think your music just makes me think of here as LA? a place, as in LA. And yeah, I would, I, would, I would not be able to know that. I, I don't know. I mean, when I listened at home, it hit very differently than when I listened mm -hmm. here. Here it felt a lot more like it was made to be listened to here. here. When I'm that's that's funny. I mean, see, I, I see. I could never know that. I could never know because you've made it here. Yeah, I have no here. ability whatsoever right. to know that this sounds like anything to do with Los Angeles at all. Well, maybe that's good to have a perspective from somebody from. Yeah, no, that's that's very important. It is. Yeah, the time and place is essential. But I, I was talking about the Mellotron, the old. Tape-based Beatles used it a lot. Strawberry Fields, you know, the classic, the opening. I wouldn't give one of these. <laughs> well, you don't want a maintenance cost. Mm -hmm. they're, they're horrendous. I like the plug-in. Yeah, the plug-in's great. Yeah, yeah, we don't, want, we don't want the real thing. So as soon as you use one of these things, which I did on my, on my first record, it's instant. I played it for my wife and she said, oh, it's so, it makes me feel, you know, nostalgia. It has these sounds that are so imprinted in us. You know, you hear if, if somebody does something like a Jimi Hendrix sound or whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. Those things have emotional resonance. And it, so you try to use them sparingly so you don't just have a cheap trick to get people in. You want to use it like a seasoning. Like a craftsman. Yeah, just use a little bit of it. A little goes a long way. And you can kind of tell when, when I play for people what they react to. And then sometimes they'll, they'll lean towards this thing oh okay they like that thing they got they got that one there there are sounds that will put people off you know there's sounds that it can be fun to yeah people uh, yeah well, if you get anything if you get any kind of reaction you're doing well that sense of home not really nostalgia happy nostalgia well that's that's for that's, a home that doesn't exist that's that's very so, kind i like hearing that there's that song um across the dial mm -hmm. i think that's on the first yeah that's on the first record and um 
I think I was just idly listening to it. Must have been on the plane or just getting there. And I felt very surprised. I was like, hang on, I got to replay this. <laughs> well, that's my intention with most everything I, for my own stuff. It requires multiple listenings. There's too much to take yes. in. And that's good and bad news. There are a lot of people you can hear that, oh, God, I love that. I, I get it. I'm there. My stuff you have to hear a few times because there's a lot, there are layers. There are layers to discover. There are layers to find. There's there's a wonderful quote of Joni Mitchell, who I hold in very high regard. Someone that she was asked years ago, something like the question was, do you hope to find out more about yourself as you write in your songs? And she says, no, no, I hope you'll find out more about yourself. And I thought, boy, that's that's really the, the right thing. Wherever the stuff leads you as a listener, it takes you somewhere you would want to go. Or maybe someplace you don't want to go, but you have to face. Whatever it is, it takes you someplace. It's doing something. It's having an effect as opposed to, well, that's nice. Uh, would you please pass the salt? Yeah, it's not just... It's not like, background. It's like, oh, cool, cool background music. It's something that you listen to. Right. It, Hang on, that makes me kind of emotional. And, uh, it's supposed to do that. And that's good that it caught that for you. It's difficult. It happens. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And the less you have to think about how to do it. It's automatically built into the system to the extent that it does become relatively unconscious. It's just the way you work. And you know this when you're creating things, I'm sure. How do you know when something's right? How do you know when it's the right part? You know because, number one, you can live with it, right? It's hard to listen to your own stuff. Yeah, but at a certain point, when you feel like you had a successful day, a successful outing, you can say, yeah, that, that's good. That works. Oh, that doesn't work. That's, we got to fix that thing. That's not right here. How do you know these things? How does one know these things? You know it because your inner compass, your inner receptors let you know these things. So it's only instinct. There's no right or wrong. There's no meter. There's no... The antennas. Yeah, I, that's right. It's that. And so you make these assessments. Yes, no, yes, no. And and I, I've had to do this. And, and it's a skill that I've gotten good at because I had to get good at it. And that was being able to produce myself. I can produce other people easily. That's easy to do. How do you be honest with yourself and not overly critical or not critical enough? It's that balance, right? So if I'm singing a vocal, let's say, or a guitar, it doesn't matter what it is, and I'm hearing it coming over the speaker or headphones, wherever, I have to change hats. Now I'm the person listening. I'm the producer saying, okay, well, good. That's a good, no, we need to fix that one. You can't fall in love with your work and you also can't hate it. How do you do that switch? I can't tell you the process. I just had to learn how to do it. I had to be what I call dispassionate about my music. At the same time, I'm being passionate. About distance it. yourself from it. Yeah, you have to do both. You have be to be close to it. You have to be very close and then be distant and being able to switch back and forth. Or sometimes be in both places at once. I mean, it's not even a decade that, that I've been doing this, so it's right. So you're learning. You're learning the process of having to be really critical. I know people who, you know, you can't record them because they hate everything they're doing. And so my job is to say, you know, just play, it'll be great. Let me work on it, singers especially. Oh, that's terrible, that's terrible. Come back, I'll do a composite vocal from five takes. Wow. Usually vocals are the worst. Well, they're hard because it's so vulnerable. It's so emotionally exposed. Raw, unedited vocals. Yes, it's very difficult. And for people who are not confident or, you know, they have issues going on, they're troubled, there's something going on. Sometimes you get the best vocals out of that. But doing it for myself, that was hard to do. And I had to learn how to do it because I realized if I'm going to make this stuff, I have to be able to be objective 
at the times when that's the only thing you have going and be completely subjective at other times. When I'm playing or singing or whatever I'm doing, no objectivity or little. I'm just playing. I'm just doing things. Okay, what do we got? Switch gears. Now I'm being objective. Okay, yes, yes, no, 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 yes. And you start to get a sense of being where that balance is. And I find that working like a couple, three weeks ago, well, almost a month now, David, our drummer, hired me. He was producing an artist, a very talented singer and good writer. And he wanted me to play guitar on the record. So we, I, I did that. And being a producer, being a writer, being a singer, being a guitar player, makes me a much better side person than if I didn't do those other things. Because I know what she's going through. She was in singing reference. I know what she's going through. She's, she's putting it all in here. She's working hard. I want to support her in that. And I know that those moments of vulnerability and rawness and exposure are tough for anyone. You think that can tie into a point that I kind of wanted to get to, which is mental health as a Absolutely. musician? Oh, gosh, yes. You have to be... At any age? Yes, absolutely. It's critical. It's... Do you think it's under-addressed? I don't know. There's a lot of really crazy people making music. I mean, it depends what you mean by crazy. I but... mean, uh, unbalanced people, not healthy, not well. But then they're making music and suddenly everything's okay. Because music can be catharsis. Very healing. Healing. Yeah, yeah. It also, when you're somebody who's going through very difficult things, it can be hard to look at your music in an objective manner and be like, okay, well, this is fine. And not, oh, everything I do sucks all the time. You see, there's people like that. The everything I do sucks people. And if I'm being hired to work with them or whatever producing, my number one job is to not let them dwell there. I distract them from it or say, well, you're wrong. Not everything you do sucks. Some of the things you do suck, but not everything. <laughs> Let's find the stuff that doesn't and focus on that. And then there are others who are very confident about it, who have a very clear sense of purpose, joy in, the, in what they're doing, and they're not beating up on themselves. I find the older musicians are better at that. They don't beat up on themselves as much as the younger ones do. There may be the um, experience factor. I think so, yeah. You're more aware of what your toolkit is, you know, I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. Let's work with the good stuff. Maybe you tend to compare yourself less. I think so. Yeah, you're less competitive with yourself. With yourself and with anybody yeah. else. Yeah, you're just doing what you think is the important work. Do it for yourself. Yeah, and and hopefully it's something that will translate for other people to, oh, there's humanity here. We're communicating. I'm doing something that's universal in some way, that's hitting people. Would hope it would be hit. I think older people have, older musicians, have an advantage to that in that if they've survived that long being musicians, they probably have figured out that beating up on yourself is not a survival technique. Did you ever do that? I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. But you were never the kind of... I didn't stay there. Yeah, I can't just stay there. Yeah, I was competitive with other musicians. I want, you know, if I would see someone who was better, well, I, I got to steal from that one, you know. I still do to some extent. So it motivates you, doesn't make you Yeah, sad. it makes you feel like there's still a lot more to know. I mean, guitar specifically, I'm sure there's it's artists in general, but when you think you've arrived as a guitar player, you're dead. It'll come up and slap you in the face and someone will, someone who's... Uh, a 15-year-old, 10-year-old kid is in a place circles or, okay, I better get back to practicing again. You know, just when you think you know everything, you don't know anything. And that happens over and over again. You never can get self-satisfied. You've arrived. You're always arriving. 
You're always evolving if you're going to be a vital artist. And I see this with everyone I work with who's been doing it a long time. All of them have that in common, the constant push. I have a dear friend of mine, Van Dyke Parks. He's a wonderful artist. Everybody knows his work. We've worked a lot together over the years. And he's going to be 79 years old, and he's tough as nails. He's still working? Oh, he works all the time. Still learning? Still learning. Yeah, he doesn't learn as much as he doesn't listen as well, but he's, <laughs> he's hilarious. He's one of the funniest people on the planet. But he said to me some years back when he was feeling down about something, he said, you know, my, my best work is still ahead of me. I thought that was so inspiring that he is not looking back, nostalgic, could care less. I would ask him about old sessions, legendary records. He said, I don't remember them. I don't care about it. And, and it's funny, too, in, in thinking about this, I had an encounter a few years back with Malcolm McDowell, the actor. He was on, we were doing this show together, and I'm a huge, I love his work. I thought he was an amazing actor. And I said, oh, I just, such a thrill to meet you. And we were sitting like this. We were in, in the green room hanging out and this thing. And I said, so when you did this movie, you know, and I did it. He said, I have no recollection of any movie I've ever done. And I said, how is that possible? He said, well, he, he intentionally purges his memory. He said, otherwise I'd be so filled up, I wouldn't be able to memorize anything new. He said he looks at old movies, he has, which he doesn't do much of, as I recall. He said, I have no recollection of ever doing any of it. And it, it helps to move on. Exactly. And the same thing with Van Dyke. You know, he played on some really wonderful record I loved. And I said, so how did you? He said, I have no idea. Which I found impossible to take in, but now I get it. He moved on. He's not holding on to that stuff because it doesn't matter if there's a record of it. It really, really makes me think of a state of mind that I used to have a few years ago when I first met the person that I make music with, who is used to be known as a shredder, was more of a guitar player who's really creative. They would spend hours and hours favorite picking, whatever, like tapping, whatever. They could do anything. It would just make me feel terrible about my skills and I wanted to quit. But I talked about it with them, and they said, well, when I see somebody like that, it just makes me want to practice even harder mm -hmm. every day to That's get right. to that level. That's right. And I noticed the difference between, they're too good anyway, why should I try? And they're good. Yeah, that, that's the balance. They should try. That's the balance. You want to feel as though that's going to motivate you. You don't want to feel that intimidated. You use it as a, as a motivational tool for yourself. So, you know, it's, again, it's always about that balance. It's uh, going back to what I was saying earlier about being able to produce myself, being very involved, and then being very dispassionate, being removed, and finding that area where sometimes they are coexisting in the moment. That's the real tough one. How do I care about something when I don't care about it? It's a real contradiction. Even outside of music. Yeah, but it's specifically in, in working in the studio. And it's a learned skill. You have to practice it like anything else. You don't come into this world knowing this stuff. So you have to learn how to do it. So there's something maybe comforting that you could say to younger artists who struggle with that, who maybe get self-conscious that it's okay. You don't have all of the experience. Yeah. You don't have everything yet. You're, you're gaining experience by doing it. You're on the learning curve. Yeah, exactly. If you don't do it, you will not get anywhere, and you'll just be back criticizing yourself. That trick is finding that balance between the elements of self-critical, paralyzing nature and extreme egotism. I'm so great. It's wonderful. Those kind of things on the extremes don't serve anything, you know. And again, working with some of the really extremely talented people I've been fortunate to work with over the years, they all have that in common. Hard work. They're all hardworking people. They have a pretty healthy sense of themselves, and they're willing to learn more. That's kind of the holy trinity of yeah. 
learning to be. They all have that in common, every one of them, and with them with their all their own specific brand of it. And those are things you want to learn for yourself. So uh, you know, what do you say to a younger person coming into it? Work hard, pay attention, listen to listen, listen more than talk. I think that's something that frustrates me a lot. That some people will look at somebody play and be like, "Oh, but they've got a gift." When it's so much hard work, talent every day. In, innate talent, I think, is one of the most overrated aspects of an artist. Kind of makes somebody feel bad if they work so much. Yeah, and so much effort. Somebody's. I, I know this very talented. Uh, he's an acquaintance of mine. Perfect pitch. He was a child prodigy on the piano, and he rests on that. He had this amazing kit. He had a huge skill set, amazing facility, great, you know. And he figures that was enough. Sorry, necessary, not sufficient. Got to have it, but that's not the whole salad. That's part of the deal. Again, the people who who you know as artists, who you admire, whose work you like, what whoever they are, they all share this in common. That trinity you you say you brought up, and also the fact that there's this sense of there's a sense of wanting this to reach out. You know, they're not operating in a vacuum. No, well, that's what you said. Like you have to band together. Yeah, don't have to that's right. Vacuum. Yeah, the, you know, there's. I'm sure in this world there are probably hundreds. Thousands, millions—I don't know—lots of people whose work we'll never hear, who could be great, but for whatever reasons, they don't want to let it out. They're sitting around in a dark room, playing, writing, painting, whatever it is. But something in them doesn't allow it out because maybe it's not good enough. Maybe I'll be judged. The judgment part is a real tough one for people. Self-judgment, very difficult. Got to get rid of that one because it doesn't serve anything. Easier said than done. Yeah, it just doesn't serve anything. Nothing good comes from it. Let other people judge you, and then you can say, "Well, thanks so much. Appreciate the time. See ya." When you start judging yourself harshly, especially, it's a dead end street. You can't possibly get anything good from it. You can't move on to actually learning and that's right. listening. That's right. Fixed up the world right there, didn't we? <laughs> that's something we say in French. I don't know if there's an equivalent. Refaire le monde to remake the world. Repair the world. Yeah. Well, in in, in a... Hebrew, it's tikkun olam. That's right. Tikkun olam. Tikkun olam. Yeah. Repair the world. Repair the world, which is you know having a conversation about. Yeah. Stuff. I mean, every culture does it. It's good in, good intentions. We don't all do it. Can I ask a question about sure. the silly ties? <laughs> what's up with that? Yeah. Well, what's up with it? Um, kind of a twofold answer. I had a really silly tie a friend gave to me years ago. It was almost like a like a clown tie, real wide checkerboard. And I wore it once, and people said, "Oh, that's really funny." I said, and I, and I sweat profusely when I play. So by the second set, it's just hanging. I can't even use it. It had a positive response, so I started wearing. Well, I didn't know this, but Steve, in Boingo, silly tie enthusiast. Yeah. Beyond, I mean, he has a collection of short ties, little kid ties that go to here. And so when the two of us, oh, it was tie heaven. So. David got into it, and John. John may have been there a little. He had some funny ones. So that's just our thing now. We wear funny ties, and we have a lot of pictures of us with funny ties on. And then we started this other little company called Tech Tie. That unfortunately the name was taken. We were to do some stuff with NFTs, you know, but bringing ties into it. So yeah, that's that's the story. Not much of a story to it, other than it was something going on with Steve before we met 
professionally that I had going on with me that I'm pretty sure John did too. I'm not sure Dave, but Dave, he has a pretty good collection too. Did you see the one he had the other night? That David big, has that wide crazy one? fashion sense. Oh, he, David's a, he's, well, he's a, a an amazingly, he's a, he's a multifaceted, he's a good painter, very good painter. Oh. And he has a very good eye, very good photographer. What can't he do? <laughs> he's a good cook. Yeah, I'm a good cook too. We, we, we have, we've had cook-offs, he and I, a little bit. But, uh, no, he's very he's uh, very visually oriented. Well, he was dressed up like he was going to a wedding or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what was funny that night when you saw us, he had another show that night to do. He double booked. That's why the drums were Steve's drums we brought in. wasn't his kit. And David is, he continues to amaze me. So some years back, three, four years ago, we were setting up to play at Ireland, which is this Saturday. I don't know if you're planning on coming. Oh, great. Great. So it's a little tiny club. And I said, so hi, how's it going? We're setting up. He said, yeah, well, I'm not feeling too good. Oh, really? Yeah. He said, yeah, I'm going to probably go to the emergency hospital after the show. I said, what? He just kind of casually said, you're going to go to the emergency room after the show. What about now? No, I think I'll be able to play. And sure enough, he played. He played great. Checks himself in. He was in there for two weeks or a week. He had some hard stuff going on. And just played the show. Played the show, yeah. And he's he's from Texas, so Texas is oh. a little bit more casual. We talk kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, he grew up out, but yeah, this is my David impression. Yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> probably go to the emergency. And we all said, "What?" I mean, I'd be I'd be crying at this point. Oh, sorry guys, I gotta go. I'm about to die, so bear with me. So that's David. He's, he's he's definitely got this aura. Of, oh, he's he's really something. And what a great drummer. He's you know a great drummer when you're playing with them, when you're singing, when you don't hear them. He's invisible. He's completely supportive and completely I mean his groove is just mm. wide. We call it wide groove that you can't play wrong. You can't rush or drag with him because it's it everything is like a big basket. Everything's going to land in it. Because he just creates this. And if you notice when he plays, you play little drums, you said yourself, right? Hmm? You play drums? Of course, that okay. was the first thing. Okay, so you know the jazz drummers would hold, it's a pen. It's Imagine this to be a pen. So jazz drummers hold the stick like this, right? They don't, the, hold, they don't hold it like this. The traditional grip. Yeah. yeah. This, like the drum sticks right here. And they play like yeah, this. Yeah, I was trained with jazz. Okay, so that leads to a style of very fluid motion. It's almost like circles. Oh Cir interesting watching him. Yeah, so now he doesn't hold it like, he holds it like this. But he will also, when he does fills, when he hits like the crash, he'll go like that with it. He doesn't do this, he like. He whips it. He whips it, exactly. Or when he when he does his it goes like, it's like these, these motions that create this great fluid feel. And again, last night we were working. He wasn't at the session. He couldn't make yesterday, but we were overdubbing to the tracks we had recorded. And we're listening to his drum parts. And I pointed out to the guys, I said, look what he did here. He created in this one song, it was a two-bar phrase that he created as a pattern. And I didn't know it at the time when we were playing because I was busy just trying to get my part down. Now we're listening to it and we're hearing this beautifully constructed little painting he made, you know? So he's... He's got this one thing and did it, chip, boom, 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 He created this little song within the song that adds this element of interest. I would never have thought of that. Programming, just forget it. This is what a drummer does. 
a drummer who writes songs, who sings, who knows music. So he's not playing drums, he's playing music on the drums. And that's talking about your shredding guitar player. Guitar is a very difficult instrument. It's seductive. Let me turn that around. It's seductive to make guitar music and not make music music. And what I mean by that is you can play the guitar great and not make music. There's a lot of people who do that, and I shall not name them. <laughs> you may know who I'm talking about, some of them. Because it's all technique, it's all dexterity, it's all, you know, virtuosity for virtuosity's sake. Which, yeah, you can be great at that. Yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, a lot of people love it, you know. The audiences just go, wow, he's so great. And I don't care about stuff like that. I don't care about, this person is so great. Am I getting anything? Are you telling me a story? Are you speaking to me musically through your instrument? Which is what I try to do. And the greats who I looked up to, B.B. King is like the best example. You've heard of him, the blues. Okay, some people have it, but three notes. You know what's in. That's B.B. King. How did he do that? Because he's saying everything he needs to say very concisely, very deliberately because he's making music he's not playing yes. the guitar he's using the guitar to make music a lot of people who i hear are playing guitar and it's, it's good that it's boring as hell to me independence of like all his limbs but also in his head oh yeah he's singing and he's and playing oh he's singing he's playing he's you know yeah he's amazing but he's making music That's what I think bodes well with the band. Yeah. It just fits in perfectly. Because yeah. when you have to not hear him, hear him blend in, it's blending in. But when you turn to him, as you said, yeah. he does something, you hear him do something. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real trick, you know, again, that you don't get when you start out. You have to get to that point. He probably, I mean, I'm, I'm sure when he was starting out, he didn't, he couldn't do that. It takes a while to get there, playing with a lot of different people a lot of different musical contexts and you just draw from this draw from that draw from this and suddenly you have a sense of who you are you know there's a, a saying native american people you couldn't be a storyteller until you were 52 years old okay well that limits a lot of people's great work but there's a lot of truth to that that you haven't accumulated enough knowledge from their perspective until you were 52 years old i take some issue with that but there's a lot to be said about it in terms of what we're saying here When you start out being, I want to be a great piano player. So you listen to all the greats and you, you can play like them and you emulate perfectly your idol. And then at a certain point, you have to figure out who you are. And the idol starts to retreat a little bit. And then hopefully the artist emerges in you. Because we're all shaped by what influenced us. You that's, build that's, your own identity. Yeah, that's simple. I mean, the, the people who turn me on musically shaped my thinking and then at a certain point you let the training wheels fall off and now you're going to be on your own and you know i've been told by people that i have a sound that's recognizable they know it's me that's my goal you know i don't want to play like anybody else i'm shaped by everything i've heard by people who i really looked up to and there's a lot of them you know somebody more than once well who are your favorite guitar players as well how much time do we have hundreds hundreds There's a top 10, there's a top 20, there's a top... Because I, I soaked it up like a sponge, you know, the ones who really made me, who lit me up. And it came from various places. I just wanted to say, well, then, for the future right now, what's going on? What are the projects? You said you had a session. Yeah, we are, we are finishing Jackie O's. going to do more recording now that we can get back and play. We're going to do more live stuff. I have nine pieces of original music that have not been put out. And because the album format seems to have become somewhat extinct, 
I don't know what exactly to do. I might release them as singles. I got to consult. We have a manager for our band. I'm going to start to pick his brain about the best way to do this because I can't play my things live. Well, when you saw us, we started the second set with an original of mine, Laugh Track. Yes, okay. That, that was, that was a, we do a couple of originals of mine, but for the most part, I can't, I don't want to, I can't, I'm not even sure, replicate what I want to do with my stuff with the band. Jackie O writes its own stuff with all of us, and that's easier to do. So more of that, I mean, figuring out what to do with my recordings. I'm working with a really famous person right now I can't talk about because I had to sign an NDA. So that's going to be coming hopefully soon. I can talk about it. More producing of other people. I'm producing an, an act the end of this month. I've made, they're called Cowboy Angst. Stephen Casper is his name, and I've made four or five albums with him. And so we're going into the studio on the 3rd, uh, 20th, 29th, 28th. He has a band, so I produce his band. And that's very rewarding because I don't write the songs. I play a little bit on it, but I get to make a record I like, you know, out of his music. I get to make something out of it that I would want to hear. And he gives me carte blanche to do what I want to do. So long term is tough. You know, what do I see as long term? I'm more like, it's stressful to think long term. Like, uh, yeah, it's difficult because so much is moving so quickly now. It's more like what's going on right now. Exactly. Yeah. I think the long term is what we were saying earlier is like figuring out where the world is now because we're still sorting this out. But you've you know, got a lot on your, on your plate as of I now. think, yeah, I think so. Staying active, you know, uh, doing what I want to do is essentially the key. I don't want to do that thing. I'm not going to do that thing. That's different than maybe even pre-pandemic where I would do things just that, you know, it paid well or it seemed like a good idea. But no, I think now it's focusing on the things I really want to do with people I want to be working with. And you know this too. With, you know, This is hard work. And if you're working with someone who's not pleasant to be around, it makes it infinitely more difficult. So it's got to be people you feel, you know, in sync with and people who are like-minded. And fortunately, everything I'm doing has that. All, all the projects I'm working with are people I want to be with, which is, you know, that's a major gift. Very grateful for that. But it was something I consciously decided. It wasn't just, well, how did this happen? It happened because that's what I wanted. And it's difficult. I mean, what's really important, which is a lifelong lesson, which I've learned only not that long ago, it's important to focus on what you want rather than what you don't want. Well, I really don't want to have this. No, you don't do that. I want to do this. It directs you towards it. And it's that's a hard thing to stay focused on. You know, you get better at it. You get better at it. And so I think that the long, short term of things is, you know, I've made music all my life. I've been very fortunate. I've never really had any other job. I delivered papers for a second as a kid. And I worked in a fabric store for a second. I was terrible at it. But music is all I've done. And just to, to bookend how we began, that would not have happened had I not been in Los Angeles. Clearly. And it wouldn't have happened except in the times in which I grew up. If I was a 10-year-old kid now, when I started playing guitar at 12, I don't know if I would be a musician now. I really don't know, because so much has changed. What's the incentive? Maybe I'd be writing code, you know. I don't know, it's a, it's a fair question. I've, I've thought about it. But in those times, how could I not? You know? Time and place. Time and place. And you find what makes you happy, at yep. least for yeah. like the yeah. mindful moments. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you, Gabby. Thank this is very pleasurable, very thank pleasurable. You.
I'll keep everybody posted on your projects and so on. Great. Well, I'll keep you posted as well. Thank you very much. I'll be sending you some stuff. Musicians Tea Time is a production of Acid Airplane Records and is hosted by Gabrielle Chenet and Sid Levine. All episodes come with a full transcript and translation into French on the Acid Airplane Records website. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Mm -hmm.